difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. Last week, we discussed the 1997 hit Men in Black, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones as agents for a mysterious organization created to keep alien visitors to Earth in line and under wraps. This week, we'll be talking about Men in Black International, which reunites Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, two of the stars of Thor Ragnarok. Directed by F. Gary Gray, the film tries to rekindle Thompson and Hemsworth's fun chemistry from Thor, Ragnarok, but doesn't quite get there. In fact, it doesn't quite get anywhere. They remain charming, but the film finds them flailing in the middle of a lifeless story about intergalactic intrigue. It's an attempt to take the Men in Black concept out of deep freeze, but it arrives still half-frozen. But it's a case study of how blockbusters have changed over the years and how some franchises carry on long after they've lost their spark, it makes for a pretty interesting contrast. We'll get to that in a bit, but first a short break, and then let's find out if everyone shares my feelings about Men in Black International. We are a rumor. Recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. Time to prove yourself, Agent M. We may have a problem in London. Welcome to MIB. You will be with Agent H, one of the best ever to wear this suit. Catching up on my daily meditation. Time for lunch, I think. Are you hungry? It's 9.30. Perfect. Tuesday's taco day. We've been compromised. It puts every citizen of this planet at risk. Look right here. Just try. It's gonna be fun. We'll have fun with it. There should be a big red button around here somewhere. Found it. We are the men in black. like the tables have turned. That was an incredible catch. Well, guys, anyone like this movie? I liked it entirely fine. This was an okay movie that was utterly all right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm all right. So my, my kid liked it. <laughs> so that's my sure. kid at the end. And, and she's like, that was a really good movie, wasn't it? And my wife and I were like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, I never, I was actively, I never actively hated it though. And I never, I was never like, ugh, when will this end? Like with, with uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, but wow. it just really didn't have 
No, what? Go what? ahead. What? 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 I'm just shaking <laughs> my head. I, can't, I mean, like, I would watch, I would watch Godzilla King of the Monsters oh, like really? 10 <laughs> times before are watching this thing. Are we, we micro squabbling? I get the, um, I get no, the I impression get. that Scott really hated this movie. Yeah. Like, okay. Tell me well. I did, but I, I want, but I don't think we know what Genevieve thinks, so I want to hear what she thinks first. Oh, I mean, I think I probably fall kind of where Tasha is, maybe a little more meh <laughs> about it. Like I just, I'm I think not sure I, you can actually I, be more meh about this movie I know, than I, I am. That's, I, a ultimate, that's a micro squabble right there. <laughs> it's, it's the ultimate meh of a movie. I mean, it is, yeah, it is just, yeah, it's just like meh it's, writ large. The, the question of this movie is how meh can you be? And it's this <laughs> meh. Um, it just like the, the word that came into my head as I was walking out of it was inert. Like it just, it felt like it just sat there. It mm. never kicked into another gear there was no like real spark to it, even with these two very sparky stars at the center of it. And that was disappointing, but nothing about the film itself I found actively bad, if that makes sense. Like I was disappointed, but like I wasn't angry at this movie. You know, I was just like, well, that was two hours I spent. I'm I'm glad I went to the early show and only paid six dollars for it, you know? <laughs> wow, those Michigan prices. Wow. You know, um, you know who sounds like he really hated that movie, though. Who? Uh, one Scott Tobias. Oh, right, me. Yeah, I think it's absolutely horrible. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what it is. The, but the thing is, you, the the film you're describing, you're saying it's my. You didn't have a, much of a feeling for it. I mean, to me, that's the type of movie that gets me angry. Uh, is a movie that just doesn't have anything going for it at all. It's not trying to do anything special. It seems to be just almost perversely emphasizing the stuff that isn't working about it. I mean, it's like, here's a film with a, has a incoherent plot and tons of it, like lots of plot. Yeah. I was trying to recall yeah. what happened in this movie, like days later. Like, what, what happened in this no, movie? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nonsense in all the men in black movies. I mean, there's always some sort of like universe threatening thing. And, and even in the first men in black, it's like, oh, okay, there's a cat with like a globe around its neck and okay, there's or, or a galaxy around its neck fine but 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 this film just keeps piling it on as if that is the important part and it's not the important part um i think there's absolutely no chemistry whatsoever between the, the stars there's there's no laughs Which is weird right because they were good together in thor ragnarok it, and they're both really charming people and yeah. really good actors but but the difference again is like is where's the contrast where is the comic tension in the movie because the first one was such a model of that of just like giving you these two characters who have who are so different and have you know and well, we just uh, and talked here... about how how much the same they were. <laughs> well, fundamentally, though, it's like they come yeah. around to it or something, right. but they're still it's still this kind of bouncy Fresh Prince character and and this crusty old guy and and uh, except that they swap them because the the crusty old guy in this case is the rookie Tessa Thompson. Oh no, I mean I'm just talking about the original, not here, but, but yeah. But here, I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating about a Men in Black International is that on paper a lot of this works really well and seems really thought through you have the rookie coming in uh but this time she's the one who's uh uptight and too serious and and takes everything in a in a grim kind of way and like mm. is really determined to prove herself and then you have the old veteran who this time is like the loose swaggering bucking authority one who, who thinks like he can do whatever he wants and it's it's a nice little flip on the original and it also acknowledges just kind of what their strengths are. You know, Hemsworth kind of got that, like that loose hipped, like, look at me, I'm great. And Tessa Thompson is really good at the kind of intense try hard, like all of this should work. And it just doesn't No, because well, there's no sense of tension in it. Well, and there's also just an emphasis on things that don't matter. I mean, just it's, it's right there in the title. It's like, who cares that there's 
stupid. There's agencies around the world. Who cares? Like, so, 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 you, what you're, you're telling me that like, not there's not only a Men in Black in New York. There's also one in Paris and London. And I mean, that's the movie. I mean, that's, I, mean, that's I was, supposed to be I exciting. was, I was really fine with the whole idea of aliens living among us. That that that, that was, but you're, yeah, exactly. They have offices in. Paris and London too. Yeah. And you I get mean, there by like some sort of subway. It's uh, kind of yeah, special it's subway. A, it's amazing. But it ties into the other thing that the movie's trying to be, which is basically kind of a science fiction James Bond mm-hmm. movie with a lot of gadgets and a you know a fancy flying Lexus and which I hated. I just come on, just like give me a half a second without some an advertisement in the middle <laughs> of a movie. It's just that kind of stuff drives me crazy. But it's like it's just not what's good about Men in Black. It's not. Men in Black is not fun because it's an international spy movie. <laughs> I don't know. So that's me. I, I was not. I was uh, s- strongly uh, against this movie. And, and as far as like comparing it to something like Godzilla King of the Monsters, I mean, at least Godzilla King of the Monsters gave us monsters and kind of like in <laughs> some like kind of and striking kings. striking images. And this just gave me nothing. I don't. I don't even remember much of it. I feel like the fundamental problem here is just that there aren't arcs. There's no sense of the characters like wanting something strongly at the beginning of the film that they get or don't get at the end. Like Tessa Thompson really wants to join the men in black, but she she gets that like by the, (laughs) like before the first act is even over and you know that it's not going to be rescinded. It's not going to be taken away from her. So she, and she's done. And then you don't see her continuing to be a tryhard. You don't see her worrying about her place in the men in black. You don't see her worrying about success or failure. It's like her arc is completely done the moment the moment Emma Thompson says, okay, fine, you can join. And then Hemsworth's character, we're told repeatedly that he used to be an incredible agent and he's not anymore. Mm-hmm. But we just don't get anything that feels at all like emotional about that. We don't get any or sense of connection with that story. Off for it either. Really, it's kind of gets forgotten after a while. I mean, too. they keep bringing it up right well, till the it, point where you find out that his memory's been erased, yeah. but you never feel an actual impact of it. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting article in the in the Hollywood Reporter. Oh yeah. Not to get too behind the scenes, but, but mm-hmm. about how this film was basically being rewritten you know, day by day and how Thompson and Hemsworth had their own dialogue writers and, and, and uh, it really does feel stitched together. And the director and the producer were fighting about what the content of the movie should be. And it was originally like a much sharper metaphor throughout. And about immigration got, too. I mean, yeah. to bring it back to the, to the original. Uh, and that all got and, thrown out in exchange yeah. for nothing. Yeah. Hemsworth's character like really disappointed me how it was wrapped up because, and I kind of alluded to this in the, in the last episode, the whole thing with the neuralizer and the, like finding out your memory was wiped, especially for someone who knows what that means and, you know, and has presumably done it themselves. Like, it seems like it would be really traumatic and we're told throughout the movie, like he's changed, he's different, something's wrong with him. And, then at the end of the movie, it's like, okay, something was wrong with him because he had this experience of being neuralized and it changed him. And there's just no payoff for that. You know, like there, like it seems like the film is kind of circling this idea of like PTSD or or, or something, you know, like there, there's a, a lot going on with that concept that could be like, there are strings there that could be pulled in interesting ways. And it's like, nope, now you're the head of the London branch. Good for you. And everyone's fine, you know? Like so much of this movie, it's like there's there's something there that could be interesting, like both built into the Men in Black premise and into this movie specifically, and it just 
doesn't go anywhere. It just is like, okay, here's some more plot that gets us to another action scene that gets us to the credits. You know, I did really like the uh, aliens played by Le Twins, um, mm-hmm. who are uh, dancers mm-hmm. and models mm-hmm. and choreographers and a whole bunch of uh, different things uh, that they do. They worked with Beyonce a bunch. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. they have interesting careers. I just really liked the design of those aliens. I found them kind of beautiful and threatening at the same time and i really enjoyed their how uh like intense and threatening their powers seemed to be and that's kind of like endemic to the whole movie because they're really authentically scary at times in a way the actual threat of the movie the the true revealed threat just isn't uh and the movie gets rid of them not super early but like way before the final climax in a pretty dismissive offhanded kind of way and it's meant to be kind of a false ending it's meant to be kind of a false like oh everybody can relax everything is fine uh kind of the ring uh, style thing but it just it doesn't have that impact it's like oh the movie's over at the end of the second act okay cool I guess. Oh, there's another threat. I don't care about that threat. That threat hasn't been set up in a way that makes me invested <laughs> no, it in it. At all. Well, so what about Pawnee? Do we have Pawnee oh, opinions? Oh, God. Oh, I liked Pawnee. <laughs> I liked uh, Kumail Nanjiani's edge, I think, is mm-hmm. comes across like more than anybody else's. Like, yeah. The big problem with the film is this, there's just no sense of edge to it. It's, yeah. like, it's like the screenwriters are really afraid that we might not like our main characters for like even a second. (laughs) And it would have been so easy, I think, to make uh, Thompson like care so much about all of this and and worry about it so much that she's unlikable. It would have been easy to make Hemsworth's character uh, so changed and so damaged that he's unlikable and then have both of them improve by the end and have both of them like move toward each other. Pawnee what actually you're, what you're says describing is, is is a movie. Yeah. <laughs> so like Pawnee says things that are mean uh, mm-hmm. and that are kind of low blows and that are kind of rude, and he's the only person in the film that they trust to do that. And yet he's so negligible. He's so unimportant to the action, despite the big moment they give him at the end. He's either totally unimportant or really important, but I couldn't sort it out because the plot made no sense to me. Like, I have no earthly, like, I I think he's disposable, but I'm not sure. But I was actually kind of happy to have that character Mm -hmm. there, just because I think Kamel Nanjiani has that, just can improvise pretty well. I mean, like, he's funny. And the film needed needs some kind of spark, and he, he provides it. Yeah. Um, and nobody else, nobody else on screen does that. But at yeah. the same time, he's Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon Three. It's he's cousin <laughs> Oliver. There's just a. It's funny. Like, well, I mean, why is he here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it seems like the movie also kind of forgot about him from time to time yeah. too. Uh, but I, th- I thought, um, I thought Pawnee was a value add. <laughs> you know, whenever we've seen any scene he was in, I mean, it's faint praise though. I prefer Forky to Pawnee. Uh, <laughs> Forky, Forky does have a, an interesting energy going on. I just feel like there are so many interesting ideas in this film that don't play out. And one of the big ones is the idea that Tessa Thompson's character, uh, Molly slash Agent M, is a huge fangirl for the Men in Black, which is something that uh, the latest Star Wars trilogy did with with Ray. This idea of the new characters are fans of the old characters. The new characters are blown away by the old characters, and so the new characters are meant to represent us looking back on these old characters with like fondness and familiarity. There's a, just a sense that like she knows what the Men in Black are, and she she desperately wants to be them. She's supposed to be our audience avatar on screen. 
So why is she so boring? She's very boring. Yeah, they're both pretty boring. It, uh, well, <laughs> what's what's the deal with this film? With it? the way it just telegraphs twists, it can't like I mean the the mole. I mean, come on, you know who yeah. the mole is. <laughs> You don't cast trailer, right? Liam Neeson as a as a surprise <laughs> heel turn. Like obviously it's Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and then also and then also the reappearance of the of a larger version of this creature that she had encountered as a child. I mean, it looks the same. It's just big, mm-hmm. and yet yeah. the film makes it makes it seem like makes it, has that reveal come to us later. It's like we already know that we what? know that this guy is who he is. Uh, I I will I will say uh, my my husband did not see that one coming. Oh. <laughs> And I, I, I was like, I was sitting there in the theater going, you, you get, you know, you, oh, okay, I'm not going to, but yeah, uh, like when you, <laughs> when you meet that thing, there is no purpose to that scene. I mean, in theory, that's a scene that makes her want to become a man in black, but that scene makes no damn sense whatsoever. Nope. The men in black show up and are like, oh, you've got a super dangerous alien banging around somewhere near your apartment. We're going to not do anything about that. We're going to tell you a bunch (laughs) of stuff that you absolutely do not need to know, which is kind of a hallmark of all of the men in black movies. And then we're going to erase it. And why do they keep doing that? Like, why bother to tell civilians, uh, hey, there are aliens and you've got one of them in your backyard and it's not a raccoon. It's totally an alien. Now we're going to erase everything we just said. Like, is it sadism? My attempt to justify it is that they're checking for humans who are like, you know, oh, yeah, that's my my neighbor, the alien. Like, humans who do know what's going on. And when they get that blank look, they're like, okay, it's safe to neuralize you. But as it plays out in the film, it's just kind of like you called the cops on the domestic disturbance next door and they came and asked you a few questions and never went next door. Like they don't find the alien. They don't even try. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there is, um, Tim Grierson has a, has a very good review of this at Mel magazine where he kind of, kind of lumps it into the category of, of zombie franchises, which I think is just a very evocative phrase. Just the, you know, so much of the, of, Hollywood filmmaking now is just based around not on stars. It, it, we're well past like sort of the Will Smith can open any movie phase of big budget filmmaking right now. It's it's they're based on brands and and like the brand is just too powerful to not keep putting out movies in some ways. And I think you know even in the Hollywood Report, Reporter article that acknowledges all the trouble this had, that there's like you know this probably won't even kill Men in Black. It's probably just put it on hold for a while. Then it'll come back in some other form. I think zombie is a really good metaphor for this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it's a weird thing too. So I didn't. I was actually looking forward to a new Men in Black movie too, and I like Hemsworth and Thompson and other things. I, there's really no reason for this to be as forgettable as it is, other than that the process itself is kind of broken, and you know, <laughs> the the will to make a Men in Black movie by a certain date is a lot stronger than to try to craft a really good men in black movie that'll, that'll make the the franchise meaningful in some way again. Yeah. You mentioned in your intro that uh, this was the latest and probably last film in the men in black franchise. And I don't know that that's true. Uh, That Hollywood reporter article ended with uh, an executive saying, yeah, Oh, there's, there's going to be another one. (laughs) I know. Uh, Yeah. Either a series, a streaming or as another movie. In some format, you're going to get more of this thing that you didn't want. Insta stories, neural (laughs) implants, something. Neuralizer implants. Plus, plus there'll be in little global locations where where Hollywood films open, right? 
Yeah. Hey, Hong Kong, maybe, maybe a nice I, one in Hong Kong. I haven't, yeah. Do, do they have offices in Hong Kong? I mean, I mean, if, I, mean I need to see a movie to find out. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and so do the Chinese, right? You open yeah. it, you open, yeah. you open the little markets that are yeah. important for the bottom line. Well, clearly the next one is going to be Men in Black Interstellar, mm. and it's going to be the one where they have to chase an alien to its home planet and then deal with how weird aliens are in their own worlds as opposed to when they try to fit in with us. Oh, and they have Indeed. their own Men in Black thing where humans are the aliens. Scott, Whoa. you and I are writing the screenplay. Hollywood, oh you have our phone number. It's at the end of every uh, every episode. We can't pass up uh, mentioning that at one point there was talk of doing a Men in Black uh, 21, 21 Jump Street, yes. I was, like, film. I was like, I need to say this before, the, before yeah. we're done with this conversation. That does sound amazing. <laughs> or terrible, you know, I don't know. But. I mean, I could I could deal with it being both. I could, I mean, I could deal with it being both. Aliens in high school, probably, right? Like, like the I men in guess. black infiltrating aliens or infiltrating high school that has aliens in it? Yeah, trying to infiltrate an alien high school, trying to infiltrate high school while dressed as aliens. I, there's so many possibilities. I know. What a well-run operation Sony <laughs> appears to be. Mostly, uh, I would watch that movie for the inevitable shirtless pose-off between Channing Tatum and Chris Hemsworth. Absolutely. I would watch any movie for that. <laughs> it's just Jonah Hill and Tessa Thompson standing in the background, like, doing color commentary. <laughs> We're going to write that script too, Scott. All right. At this point, I feel like we've officially run out of things to say <laughs> about Men in Black International. Then we'll be right back to talk about Men in Black International, but in, in relation to the original Men in Black. Excuse me. What happened here? We had the best party. Kanye showed up and dropped like a whole new album. Look around. We got our asses kicked. <laughs> My queen. I'll never serve another. I must end my own life in the most painful way possible. I don't think that she would want you to, you know. Who are you to know what a queen would or wouldn't want? Are you a queen? Well, I mean, to the extent that all women are, yes. But no, no, I'm not a queen. You know what she is, though, is an agent. Is that a title? It is a title. So maybe the best way to honor the dead is to go on living. Yes. I pledge loyalty eternal to you, Agent M. No, no, no. I'm not interested in a subject. Too late. It's done. I already pledged the loyalty. I wish you'd said no, no, no before. And if you should die before I, I promise to end my own life in the most painful way possible. Yeah, ha. I don't like you. Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Genevieve, you want to talk about doohickeys, as, as you often do. <laughs> but what stood any. out to you about, about, about uh, the doohickeys in, in, this, in, the, in these films? Not just any doohickeys, cosmic doohickeys. Oh, right, um, sure. I, I mean, like, broadly, I kind of want to just talk about the, you know, the weaponry and technology in this film. But specifically, I was struck by the sort of similarity between the, the galaxy on Orion's collar and the you know, sort of cosmic doohickey that uh, Vungus gives to Tessa Thompson's character that turns out to contain a star that is also a weapon. And similarly, the galaxy in the first Men in Black was posited as like, it it could be a weapon, you know, uh, it, it could be used as a weapon if it got into the wrong hands. But what struck me as different about the way it was done in the first film is we have that weird ending shot where it like zooms way out and the, the galaxy is just a, a one marble and a bag of marbles that the aliens are playing with. And so it kind of like briefly and oddly engages with this idea that like 
there are civilizations in, in these little galaxies that are just kind of disposable and could be weapons for other civilizations, you know, and in Men in Black International, it's like, nope, it's a gun. It's a big old gun, <laughs> you know, that struck me as a direct connection, but just kind of more broadly, uh, I wanted to talk about the, you know, all the tech in these films. The tech in Men in Black International, I mean, that weapon is so crazily powerful. I mean, they test it and it opens up like a Grand Canyon, practically. Right, right. Um, so it's pretty huge. I, I, I'm surprised that the film seems to be obsessed. Again, I compared it to James Bond with gadgetry and with cool cars and subways and, and these super powerful weapons. I, you, you'd think more of that would stand out, I guess, than it does. I mean, I'm, I'm much more... When I think about the first Men in Black, I, I think you think about that pawn shop and the way that's set up, and the way the weapons reveal themselves in that scene is just so much cooler. You know, even though even though you don't necessarily know what each individual weapon does, it's just kind of cool to see. Hey, there's a whole arsenal of these things that you need in order to do this job, like conventional guns and business like that doesn't, doesn't work. I like the noisy cricket. Oh, that's what I was going to bring up too. Yeah. There's also just the, the gag of Will Smith and the noisy cricket. You know, he, uh, Tommy Lee Jones has a gigantic gun. Uh, Will Smith has a teeny little gun that does a lot more than you expect it to. Like both of them sort of have a kind of a, like a signature feel and a whole bunch of gags built around those weapons. And then, at the end of the movie, Will Smith gets a big size gun and makes a big size deal out of it. In Men in Black International, it's kind of a joke that they're just constantly, they're surrounded by weapons. Like Hemsworth and Thompson just are driving around this car that's made entirely out of weapons. Like it's so much made out of weapons that I don't even understand how it functions as a car because every <laughs> single piece of it is also a gun. It's a Lexus. That's how it functions. Uh, it's very, it's very... I can hear you doing the voiceover now. It's a Lexus. That's how it functions. It's yeah. made of weapons. Yeah, and one didn't they have just like a hunk of junk? It was like an old Ford or something in the in the first movie. You know, like a there's Ford a specific POS. line about it's like an old rust bucket, but it has mm-hmm. the red button. Yeah, and then the red button comes back. There, are, there's definitely a sense that uh, the the people who wrote Men in Black International watched and rewatched and rewatched Men in Black for so many of their like specific gags and go tos, and the red button is one of them. It's like don't press the red button okay, it's time to press the red button. And then they have to keep coming back to the red button and, and how excited Pawnee is to press the red button in the new movie. <laughs> somehow, the again, the effect is just less. Also, I kept wondering, how do you keep yourself secret when you literally turn your car into a jet on a street, like whenever you want? I just assume it has like built-in neuralizers, like along the, the, the on, on the hubcaps or something. That uh, it's like, the, yeah. the exhaust feed, you know, exhaust fumes yeah. or neuralizers. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, speaking of callbacks to the first film, I, I forget where exactly where I read this, but uh, I guess Tessa Thompson was pretty adamant that she would not say, "I make this look good." You know, but that that's was definitely fine. something that people wanted to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's fine. It's a good stand. To, that's a good stand to take if yeah. you don't want to just be, yeah. you know, completely mimicking the first one. But, yeah, if you yeah. don't want to be thought of as Lady Will Smith, mm-hmm. like maybe don't take his biggest catchphrases and try to just redo it. Yeah, and know that everybody's going to compare you. Like when she says, "I'll be back," though. That was. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of, I was waiting for her yeah. to say it. I was waiting for her to say, "You know, I make this look good. <laughs> Makes it look good." It's true. Well, she doesn't say it. But uh, it kind of brings me to my connection. Uh, uh, We're going to talk about 
actors and that's that's movie stars um because you know as i said in the first segment particularly with regard to will smith i mean that is a movie star uh you know i mean he's a fine actor etc but he is primarily this incredibly charismatic figure who takes us through the world of the movie and it's with so much so much ease i mean there's such a presence to him and 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 i feel like this movie, uh, the the new movie, Ben and Black International, is indicative of a much larger crisis that we're we're having now in Hollywood movies, where I think concepts are much larger than the humans who bring those concepts to life. And so you may have a collection of very uh, you know attractive and talented and versatile actors, of which Thompson and Hemsworth are, but you don't have stars, <laughs> in my opinion. I don't think, in, 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 and I think that the absence of Star power is part of what makes Men in Black International all the more incoherent because you just don't have that really strong focus. You don't have that transcendent presence that's really going to kind of bring the whole movie together. I mean, the movie has got so many problems, but that is definitely a big one for me. Yeah, there are two actors I like and, and I look forward to seeing in movies, but you're right. There is there is an absence of... You know, a star is someone that everything orbits around, and you just don't get that here. And in his non-Thor roles, I mean, a lot of Chris Hemsworth just dies on screen. I don't know what is. I mean, he's funny in Ghostbusters, funny in Ghostbusters, but but a lot of so many of his roles as a leading man are just like wildly flat. Just like what ha- like what happened to this guy who can be so charismatic and funny as Thor and as is in Ghostbusters and other other performances and then in a movie like this just give you nothing. Scott, I'm just going to get you in trouble with half of film Twitter right now. You ready? What about Black Hat? <laughs> I, I can't comment on Black Hat <laughs> yeah, or else I will indeed enrage uh, either one half of film Twitter or the other. <laughs> I really enjoyed him in Bad Times at the El Royale which I believe was one of my uh, next picture show picks possibly after somebody else already picked it like yeah he he brings a, a menace to that role and a sexuality that's a weird and dreamy and reminds me a little of uh some of the stuff that goes on in the wicker man like it's hmm. he's he's pretty distinctive in that movie i need to see that one i still haven't seen it yeah oh i i highly advise it for a, a wide variety of reasons but uh, it's a distinctive role and he's really not the star of that movie. Like mm. it's it's an ensemble and he's a minor side part of it. And I think whenever you get something like that, you can you can have Keanu Reeves in The Gift, like playing a character that's completely against his type and playing it so much better than he plays his actual type. You know, you can have a, a Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder uh, doing something weird and fun. And I think movie stars, to the degree that we have movie stars, they're often at their most fun when they're doing the thing that isn't the thing that made them movie stars that they have to do over and over again. Occasionally that's true. But yeah, I just think there kind of is a difference to me between a movie star and an actor. <laughs> it's just a meaningful distinction. And you can you can be both, I guess. But Men in Black International lacks movie stars, in my view. I mean, is that fundamentally... Is it the actors or is it just the structure of the roles they're in? Is it just that the film is much more interested in its doohickeys and its set yeah. pieces than it, it is in it does, them? That, yeah, I mean, that fairly doesn't help. I mean, you know, not having that strong fish out of water element, not having the strong mismatched buddy comedy elements that were present in the first movie, that's very harmful to the film as well because you're talking about a chemistry thing here and a comic tension that doesn't exist. I'll tell you, one of my favorite sequences, scenes, I guess just scenes in Men in Black, 
is when Kay and Jay are talking about like whether Jay is actually going to join the Men in Black. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones is, is like, I'll, you know, I'll give you a day to think it over. And he walks away and we're just left with Will Smith sitting on a bench mm-hmm. as as the day goes on and the sun goes down and he's just thinking it through. And that film is so lean that we know nothing about his life. We know nothing about his family. We have no idea what he's giving up. But you feel the weight of his decision because of the way the film treats that scene, because of that montage of him just sitting in one place and thinking it over. And I don't feel like there's anything in in Men in Black International or Mibby, as I like to call it, that lets you spend that kind of time with the characters as though their individual decisions were important, as though you're supposed to care about how they feel or you're supposed to care about the decisions they're making. There's no sense of personal difficulty in Mibby that has an impact on that level. And it's such a strange moment of impact, again, because we have no idea what he's giving up. We don't know what's going through his mind. We just know he's trying to make a decision. But again, there's something soulful that Will Smith does which I like much better in films where he gives you a diversity of emotions rather than the films where he's trying to be soulful for two hours straight. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, that that sequence, I think that's a we care about what the movie star thinks kind of sequence that you don't get in the new one. I guess we should also talk about, about humor in, in these films. And, and so much of the success of the first Men in Black comes from a screenplay that just doesn't let up and just trips along and has like these running gags. I love Tommy Lee Jones needling Will Smith throughout. Um, <laughs> you know, Fiorentino's character's memory getting erased is is, is a fun running gag. It is, it's tightly put together. and Chemistry goes a long way and it's just so fun to watch Smith and Jones interact with one another. And, and it's like... Men in Black International gives you none of that, and, and and I think it is a victim of. Well, apparently, also the original Men in Black was also heavily rewritten, but you can kind of it kind of feels like a movie that's being rewritten day by day. There's not a lot pushing along. There's not a lot of sense of who these characters are, e- even as individuals, much less who they are as a team. I I, I didn't laugh, and on Johnny had a couple of funny lines as Pawnee, and that was kind of it mm. for me. You know, uh, one of the things I kind of hit when I was writing my review of Men in Black International is it is just achingly sincere. Mm. The the characters are so sincere about what they do and, and what they care about. And one of the things that's fun about Men in Black is what comes across isn't sincerity or dedication. It's exasperation. Like Mm. Tommy Lee Jones is exasperated with this job and the aliens that keep making it harder. Will Smith is exasperated with the way everybody in the group keeps riding him. Uh, Rip Torn is exasperated with this this rookie who keeps making mistakes and is just annoying. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is exasperated with the entire human race. (laughs) And just on and on and on, all the way down, uh, you know, Tony Shalhoub is exasperated with the fact that he keeps getting his head blown off. (laughs) Uh, David David Cross is exasperated because he's David Cross cross <laughs> everybody is just like so frustrated and annoyed by the state of the world in this film and it gives it a kind of peevish quality uh that's really hilarious and you contrast that with the tone of the, the new movie which is just i would like to help fight aliens you should help fight alien like that it's just self-seriousness to it that just is kind of the death of comedy yeah kind of wanted to bring something up that relates a little bit to the last topic, uh, movie stars, but also to this, which was uh, in that article that uh, we mentioned in the last episode by Rachel Handler at Vulture, uh, talking to Vincent D'Onofrio and Barry Sonnenfeld. 
uh, Sonnenfeld like briefly mentions that like way back in the early stages of Men in Black, it, like someone wanted it to star Chris O'Donnell and Clint Eastwood. And I think like we when we saw that, we all kind of laughed at the Chris O'Donnell of it. But uh, and I laughed at the Clint Eastwood of it. Uh, but it seems like maybe uh, someone at this table thought otherwise. But I <laughs> I just can't imagine Clint Eastwood having any of the humor that Tommy Lee Jones has in this performance. And it's such a like he, he definitely has like the grizzled, you know, old timer thing down. But there's such a sort of sardonic, humorous quality to Tommy Lee Jones in general, and especially in this movie, that I can't imagine Clint Eastwood delivering. Like, maybe my favorite moment in Men in Black is it's so tiny. It's after they've hit the red button and they're upside down in in the tunnel and Elvis is playing and Tommy Lee Jones is kind of singing along to it. And there's this one moment where he gives like this little head bobble. You know, like he's like grooving with the music and his hair's hanging down because he's upside down. He just has this little wobble and it's so perfect. It makes me laugh every time. And I'm like, Clint Eastwood wouldn't do that. He would just be (laughs) stoic the whole time. (laughs) You know, uh, Clint Eastwood, it's been a long time, I think, since Clint Eastwood has let himself be funny. And maybe that's the dignity of age. And maybe it's, uh, you know, his uh, inner conservative just like really wanting to be serious about the world and the state of it, you know, because he's making making these films that he sees as very important about uh, things that are going on in the world. But you look back to his early career and the stuff like uh, any which way you can and every which way, but loose, like he was funny in those movies in a pretty, I like a hip shot effortless way that might be a little Hemsworthy. Like he, sure, he but, did but used was, to have comedy chops. Yeah. But that was way before 90, 1997. Like I think like, was he doing anything even remotely comedic? In 97? No, but neither was Vincent D'Onofrio, as we yeah. as we've previously established. I mean, yeah. it's, I think if you, if you have those instincts, if you have those chops, like refinding them is more possible than creating them if you never had them at all. And, I'd, yeah, I'd say you, you want to see exasperated, you know, cast Clint Eastwood in, in, in that role. I would be a different performance. I'd still, I think I'd be, I'd be curious to see it. He'd be good. I, I mean, I, you know, he is, he and Tommy Lee Jones are, are different actors, but uh, I can see Clint Eastwood being in that movie being funny because he can be funny because he has that just kind of deadpan quality. And he also has a way of his disrespect for the young <laughs> uh, <laughs> makes, makes can make for some funny moments, even in movies that are a little more serious. They're different actors, but you know what they share? They're both space cowboys. Exactly. <laughs> space cowboys is funny. Yeah. yeah I like, uh, I like the very movie. funny. So there's a good, there's a good old, older Clint Eastwood performance. It's funny. But Chris O'Donnell would have just murdered this. <laughs> it would have been over. It would have been. This, we would not. We it would have stopped at Men in Black because Chris O'Donnell has absolutely zero star power, and uh, the film would have just completely died if he was the star. Zero star power, but for a while they boy they really tried. They, they tried. tried. I, th- I think I think probably he's on. Tried to make fetch happen. He's on mm-hmm. NCIS, an NCIS show, which seems good. That seems like a good good zone. You know, <laughs> it's so funny how these actors like. We were like, where are they now? And it's like, oh, they're just making an absolute fortune yeah. on shows that, on CBS shows that you don't watch. Yeah, you know, uh, part of the appeal of of Will Smith and this movie being funny is, I I feel like this was one of the early films for me where I 
felt like I saw code switching in action and started to understand what that was. Mm. That line when he first lands on the double-decker bus and he's like, oh, it'd be raining black men in, uh, in New York City, uh, which was apparently an improv line. And he goes in and out of that kind of language throughout the film, depending on what kind of impression he's trying to make. It's not like he's code switching back and forth between like being around his family or like being around like in his neighborhood or people he's comfortable with versus being around a bunch of up, like uptight uptown white folks he's really just kind of doing it in his own head it's like whatever he feels is the most comfortable mode of self-expression for the moment uh he and he changes back and forth in how he does language but he often falls into that like more uh like ghetto form of expression when he's saying stuff that he knows is hilarious he he kind of reaches for that mode when he's being funny and it like it really works and, you know, while we're kind of talking about, you know, like, uh, <laughs> could I sound more white as I try to figure out, like, how I can say this without being maximally offensive? Like, the loose urban conversation is kind of a conversation that goes on throughout the entire movie. Like, the topic I was going to bring in was just the setting of these two films and how one of them takes place in a very funky New York, like a New York full of pawn shops, a New York where an alien ambassador and his bodyguard uh, hang out at a deli where nobody bats an eye at them talking this weird foreign language pretty loudly uh, because it's the kind of place where probably everybody is talking a different language. You have this setting that's very uh, janky and crowded and full of cabs, which gives us a great visual joke of Will Smith chasing a cab and walking out into you know a flotilla of New York City cabs. And then in Men in Black International, you have a bunch of digital spaces and generic spaces. Like you keep coming back to the Eiffel Tower, but the Eiffel Tower isn't significant as a part of Paris. It's just significant as... Uh, a big shiny thing to stand on while you're fighting aliens. Well, it's There's it's never... like the wormhole. It's like a wormhole that the hive opened, I guess. Yeah, but or, what or, I'm saying is yeah. it's not a part of a city. It's not a part of a oh, setting. Yeah. It's not a part of a culture. There's no sense of location in Men in Black International, even though we keep moving from location to location. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no sense of a surrounding culture. They get there and it's I was like, well, here's a set that represents a mm-hmm. city. I mean, yeah. you know, that's what movies do, but but there is like no sense of there is actual international story in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would have been like the first Men in Black having a big scene at the Empire State Building. It's like, eh. <laughs> you know, that's not really so all that exciting. Like, in, what, you know, whereas, whereas, you know, the first Men in Black does seek out these interesting, flavorful New York spaces, you know, for us to just land in the Eiffel Tower. I mean, that's as generic as it gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really does, it really does kind of, it is really interesting contrast between those those two movies, you know, especially, again, if the emphasis is supposed to be on Men in Black International, why don't you give us something new about the places that it's going. Some, uh, find your own version of a funky Paris to set, set something or, or a funky Marrakesh, I think, mm-hmm. is in this movie too. And don't just give us the th- everything, the things that we've seen before. Yeah, and you know, Marrakesh is 
a market and one garage where there's a guy with an alien beard. There's always a market in Marrakesh. <laughs> Paris is the Eiffel Tower. Like that's mm. all there is to it. I just I feel like one of the things that makes Men in Black charming is again going back to that idea of immigration. You have a place that's very densely packed with people that are very widely diverse uh, and a sense of kind of everybody maybe a little hostile to each other. Everybody may be very different, but everybody also like doing their own thing, chasing their own hustle. The international world of Men in Black International seems just much less crowded and much less specific and flavorful and interesting. Well, if you want flavorful and interesting, the original Men in Black is available on DVD <laughs> and Blu-ray, and it's online via the usual digital rental sites. Uh, Men in Black International is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? You know, uh, I was going to do something else, but I threatened to do Last Seduction, and I'm going to have to do Last Seduction. Last Seduction is one of my favorite all-time movies. It's a 1994 John Dahl noir, neo-noir, that I think is the film that they should teach in school when people ask what neo-noir is as a genre. It's visually uh, very, very indebted to classic noirs. It's emotionally indebted to classic noirs, but way more daring in a modern sort of way. Uh, Linda Fiorentino stars as a woman who in the very beginning scenes is scheming to leave her husband played by Bill Pullman and steal all of his money and start a new life elsewhere. Uh, she does. And then there are complications and it's God, it's so tightly written. Mm. It's so well acted and it's such a small and specific movie. It relies really heavily on Fiorentino's ability to, in her own sort of way, code switch between characters, her ability to play whatever a scene requires uh, and to just take on these personas like she uh, essentially plays a sociopathic con woman kind of person who can walk into a situation eyeball it decide what it needs uh, in order to manipulate the people around her into doing what she wants and then she does it and it's it's just like whip crack fast the degree to which she changes tactics and changes personas to deal with whatever whatever situation she's facing as a noir, it's just it's one of my favorites because it's so tight and it's so mean in so many ways. As a it's just like a starring vehicle for a woman. It was just one of the early films that I was like, why isn't there more like this out there? So The Last Seduction is pretty widely available on subscription services. It's also if you happen to already be an Amazon Prime member, it's uh, free on that service. Oh, oh good. Now, now I want to just like go check it out again. Mm -hmm. I've seen it many times, but I love it. I mean, Fiorentino is just, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, like, she's playing a, a femme fatale, but we're used to a femme fatale being a secondary character, being the being the person who's going to kind of, like, screw over our, our hero or attempt to screw him over. For her to actually be out front creates a much different dynamic, right? And it, the way she's able to use her sexuality and use what men expect from her and want from her and just manipulate them and just and d destroy them and, and get what she wants so funny and sharp and um 
Yeah, I don't know. Very good. John Dahl is a very good stylist. I mean, he he had done Red Rock West the year before. That was kind of his big breakthrough. But I think the last seduction is him at his absolute peak. I thought it was. I'm very glad he brought it up because. Uh, it's a wonderful movie. Yeah, agreed. Red Rock West is tremendous, and he's done some strong things since. Definitely. Like he really loves working in this genre, but Last Seduction, it just doesn't get any better than that. I'm going to recommend a noir of sorts. It's not a good movie, guys. I, I <laughs> talked about it last episode, but it's it's just kind of an entertaining. We're not really in the so bad it's good business very often here, but I'm going to recommend one anyway. This is a film called Serenity that came out. In January, if you didn't notice, it's because the company behind it uh, kind of didn't advertise it. It is written and directed by Stephen Knight, who's a very talented writer. He's written such films as uh, Dirty Pretty Things, Eastern Promises. He wrote and directed Locke, that movie where Tom Hardy drives around in a car, uh, which is good. He wrote uh, Allied, a a movie I liked, Robert Zemeckis film. Uh, This is an ambitious film that doesn't, it just doesn't work on any level to hilarious effect and I can't even tell you everything about it without spoiling it which I, I refuse to do but let's put it this way it starts out as a noir it's kind of a sun-drenched noir uh, set in the tropics um, starring Matthew McConaughey as a, as a tortured fisherman and uh, <laughs> Hmm. The beach bum. He's kind of a beach bum. No, I think he's more of a beach bum in the film. Oh, what's the name of that film where he's a beach bum? I can't remember the name. A of talking it. cat. Uh, yeah, talking cat. There you go. Um, but um, but anyway, uh, his name is Baker Dill. Can I tell you that much? I'll oh, tell you that boy. much. And the, the cast is Anne Hathaway and Diane Lane, Shaman Hunsu, and um, Jason Clark. And what a cast! Yeah, there's a lot of fishing in it. There's a lot of other <laughs> stuff in it. I don't know. I, I don't want to say too much more, but. Uh, if you are in the in the market for so bad it's a good movie, uh, and or want to see Matthew McConaughey's butt a lot, this is a film for you. Serenity, run it now. It's a film for me. Uh, is it Serenity a, is now. It good butt? Is uh, it worth it? Serenity now. Yeah, you know, that's uh, the, every you know every butt is beautiful to someone. Um, <laughs> Best answer, Genevieve. How about you? For those of you who don't know, I have been moving to a new state for the past several weeks, which hasn't left a whole lot of time for movie watching. So I want to recommend something that I saw a while ago, but I don't think we've ever talked about on this podcast. Um, and it's inspired by the presence of Lay Twins in Men in Black International. I wanted to recommend another film in which they briefly appear, and that is Homecoming, a film by Beyonce. This concert film version of her instantly legendary 2018 Coachella performances dropped on Netflix a couple of months back. So I think it's pretty likely that anyone who is already intrigued by this movie has seen it. But I'm going to use this opportunity to, A, hopefully discuss it a bit with all of you, and B, urge anyone who may think it isn't for them, or who erroneously believes that they're not a Beyonce fan, to check it out. (laughs) Uh, I think Homecoming easily stands among some of the best concert films ever made, and admittedly a big part of that is attributable to the concept Beyonce imagined for these two performances, which are an extended homage to historically black colleges and universities, and draw extensively on touch points of HBCU culture like marching band and drum lines, black fraternities and sororities, and step. Uh, obviously, Beyonce herself is unquestionably the star here, and she presides over the stage like the queen she is. Uh, but Beyonce, backed by a full marching band and step dancers and baton twirlers, is some next-level spectacle that everyone deserves to experience. But all of that was already apparent from the Coachella footage that leaked in the days after the performance last summer. So the question is what Homecoming offers that's different from that straight-ahead concert footage. And to that, I say so much. Uh, There is some behind-the-scenes footage that's mildly interesting, but really too heavily image-controlled to be especially illuminating. 
But that same expert grasp of image control that Beyonce has, which defines so much of her career, comes through especially in the cinematography and editing of this film, which merges the two separate performances into one long concert, but interestingly doesn't try to cover up the seams. Uh, and you can tell because the color schemes are different for each night of the performance. The first night was yellow and the second was pink. Uh, and the film switches back and forth between footage of the two in a way that becomes, I think, really hypnotic and impressive and underscores the amount of precision and control and just performance that's pulsing ever under every moment of this thing. So even if you're lukewarm on Beyonce's music, there's so much happening here in terms of visual spectacle and filmmaking prowess that I think it's definitely worth a first watch if you missed it or a second or third or fourth if you have seen it. Uh, it's sitting there on Netflix just waiting for you. Uh, homecoming. Yeah, I really have been wanting to see it. I've seen it in bits and pieces. Uh, but one thing that you just brought up that I think is a, an interesting point is that is that when we think about the greatest concert films of all time, films like Stop Making Sense mm-hmm. or The Last Waltz, um, we think of them as the we think of them as a Martin Scorsese film or a Jonathan Demme film. But the artist's conceit mm-hmm. matters so much in how good a concert film can be. Uh, you, you know, it stopped making sense is so much a collaboration between David Byrne and Jonathan Demme and, and the last waltz is so, is such an extraordinary event of which Scorsese was tremendously prepared to film, but did not produce. I mean, that was something that, that Robbie Robertson and the band kind of, and their people sort of assembled all that matters. And so, so it's, so it creates kind of an interesting dynamic between the performers and the filmmakers. Yeah, and I mean, Beyonce is credited as the like director, writer, producer of it. I think she had a co-director, Ed Burke, but I mean, it is entirely her vision. You know, not just the performance, but as I said, the way it is presented on film. Like she's notoriously adept at controlling her image, and I think this film is a very good example of that in a positive sense. Have none of you seen it? Is that serious? No, okay. I haven't uh, seen it yet. I nope. Won't, I, won't, I mean, ah, I want to see it. Uh, it's, a, it's, that sitting, it's that sitting on Netflix thing that it makes it like, yeah, it's <laughs> It'll be, be there later. Room. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I'll go home and watch it now. How about I'm that? Per- I'm personally offended. You have to go watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I just watch Lemonade? Is that a lot shorter? <laughs> I mean, it's an entirely different experience than Lemonade. I mean, it, but it kind of has the same sort of control that I'm talking about is lemonade, you know, like there is such a strong concept behind it from the very first frame. And it's so thought out and nothing happens accidentally in lemonade and nothing happens accidentally in homecoming. So I I, speaking of lemonade, another problem is that, that, you know, when you're on Netflix, you could just watch the brass, the bash brothers again. Um, Uh, (laughs) I've had that problem recently. And I don't know, I'm a little horrified. I, I pulled up Netflix and searched Homecoming to, to sort of remind me uh, to watch it later. And like everything else it's recommending to me, like everything it thinks that I want to watch because I want to watch Homecoming. It's like the Emoji Movie and Peter Rabbit and Woody Woodpecker and Hotel for Dogs and what? Stuart Why? Little, wow. Captain Underpants. It's like it very clearly thinks if you want to watch Homecoming, you are a small child who likes dumb animated movies. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, I'm only one of those things, and I liked it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Homecoming that's on America, Amazon Prime as well with Julia Roberts. That's a good yeah. Homecoming. And, and Spider-Man Homecoming. There's a lot of Homecoming. And, and, and Joe Quality Dante's Homecoming. homecoming. Yes. <laughs> incredible. Basically just Homecomings are yeah, good fantastic. things, apparently. All right, Scott, what about you? 
Okay, so um, <laughs> I I recently I've been doing a lot of binge watching lately. I binged a ton of HBO series for this HBO ranked list I did for Vulture, Noel Murray. I binged a ton of Scorsese documentaries for a Scorsese documentary piece I did for The Ringer. And for The Washington Post, I just binged all seven Child's Play movies. It'll be eight when I see the see the new one tomorrow. But uh, but I wanted to kind of talk about that experience a little bit uh, because I think of the of the, what's interesting about the Child's Play movies is that one there is a single driving force behind all of them, and that's that's their creator Don Mancini, which is unique. And two, they change with the era with each era. The first three Child's Play movies are part of the slasher era and and kind of reflect reflect those conventions. And then the two next ones, maybe the 90s, Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky are films that are uh, very much in the post-scream, you know, meta-comedy, you know, uh, mode, very different films. And then the two films after that, which were straight to video, they have their own quality too, almost like a haunted house quality as well and kind of go back a little bit more to to what the first three were doing but uh, of of the seven i really strongly recommend that people check out those two in the middle bride of chucky and seed of chucky which are really funny and they in strange and uh and stylish and also um i think maybe the only first like true lgbt horror <laughs> i mean this is this, these are films that that are about uh they bring in jennifer tilly uh these two films as, as tiffany who is the uh chucky's uh chucky when chucky was charles lee ray had a girlfriend uh and that this is tiffany who's jennifer tilly and uh tilly is was cast because of her her role in bound so she's very much in that kind of mode so it's got that going for it but then it just has all of these interesting subversive elements i mean there's a there's a point i think in the in seat of chucky where where john waters shows up there's a gender non-conforming doll who's like who's the seed of chucky and seed of chucky uh, who's who um they who is assigned as glenn and then becomes uh, glenda later in the movie in in a reference to the famous ed wood movie and uh these movies are just they're very quirky they have they they found this true cult appreciation and um i don't know i, I just I, I was surprised and kind of enchanted by this whole which is really a reflection of a very strong, clear, and yet versatile vision um, the, by its creator, Don Mancini, who unfortunately was completely cut out of the new film entirely. Like, no, they, they, they would not let him have any input on it. Um, so you have this very strange situation where he is still making Chucky entertainment he the, the the cult of chucky which is his last movie was made in 2017 and and he's working on a chucky tv show for sci-fi but this movie which is kind of a reboot has nothing to do with him which is kind of sad to me because i think he i think he's shown an ability throughout the years to kind of adjust this character and this idea uh for a, a range of different you know cultural scenarios so 
Child's Play. Take take the journey if you can. They're only it, it, none of those films are are too too far over ninety minutes. Most of them are are actually right at ninety minutes. Scott, I have two questions for okay, you. Okay, go ahead. One is how is Cult of Chucky since it's the only one of these movies available on Netflix? Oh, it's good. I mean, it's you know, it's it, I would I would though I think it doesn't really as a standalone. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because uh, um it, it kind of ties in pretty closely to Curse of Chucky, which is the one that comes before and introduces. Um, uh, a, a a an important new character played by Fiona uh, Dorif, who is Brad Dorif's uh, daughter, and Brad Dorif is the voice of Chucky. Uh, and so this this film is very much a family affair. There's a lot of actors: uh, Brad Dorif, uh, Jennifer Tilly, uh, Fiona Dorif, who, who and then the producer. They've all they've stayed with the movie uh, for uh, these movies with for for a, for a long time, and it's almost got kind of kind of got a family feel to it. Hmm. Second question is, how are these movies on your beloved violence? Like, are they mm. are they gory? Are they stylish? What yeah, do they do I mean, with yeah. it? I mean, they're 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 gory and stylish. I mean, I don't think any more so than the films of their era. Um, I mean, I think I I would say they're less less gross than a lot of slasher movies, but they but they have they have their share of blood. And Chucky's very resourceful. I mean, you think <laughs> you think you think Chucky's just somebody you can just like it's a doll you can just kick him, right? You just kick him <laughs> or pull him apart. I mean, he's a doll, but but but. You can't, but but he's also he's he's surprisingly strong and he's he's clever and he's spry and he's he's very elusive and you can't and you can't kill him. I mean, here's a here's a guy who like put his soul into a doll. You know, I mean, like this is not going to be easy an easy guy to to, to, to kill. <laughs> you can't do it. You have to get him right in the right in the heart. And even when you do that, I mean, little little Chucky parts will still kind of come after you. So uh, don't underestimate him. <laughs> he's re- he's resilient. He's been around for thirty years. <laughs> he's been in thirty years worth of Chucky movies. So, uh, Child's Play, see them all, <laughs> just like me. That's a, it would be a totally great use of your time. But it really, if you if you really just have to see a couple, I would actually maybe recommend seeing the first Child's Play, which is which is solid, and then skipping the the next two, which are to me the weakest of the of the of all of them, and then going right to Bride of Chucky and, and Seed of Chucky, which do do have a, a strong uh, following among LGBT fan horror fans uh, for a reason. And uh, I think it's, I think they're a lot of fun. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair of episodes will come out on July 9th and July 16th. Scott, what's coming up next? Martin Scorsese's new Netflix documentary, Rolling Thunder Review, takes advantage of Bob Dylan's trickster image by blending fact and fiction in its treatment of Dylan's famous mid-70s concert tour through smaller venues across America. In Scorsese's film, electrifying footage of Dylan and Fred's on stage is given phony significance by stories and talking head testimonials that aren't entirely on the level. A Next Picture Show listener named Enrico wrote in suggesting that we pair Rolling Thunder Review with Velvet Goldmine. Todd Haynes' tribute to the glam rock movement. As Enrico notes, both films are about artists as mythmakers and storytellers. Both films are about trying to balance artistic expression with commercial interest. And both films feature thrilling performance footage. So for our next pairing, we're going to take up Enrico's suggestion and dive into the elusive truths of Scorsese and Haynes' fact-based fiction. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of all the men in black and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 
234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in New York Times, Washington Post, which is where my about child's play, the, the Ringer, NPR, uh, Variety, uh, Verge, um, Vulture, uh, and other fine publications. Uh, Genevieve? Physically, you can find me in Southeast Michigan now, uh, <laughs> no longer in Chicago, but I am still the deputy TV editor at Vulture, and I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Tasha? I am the film and TV editor over at TheVerge.com, where you can find me writing and editing. I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? You can find me on Twitter at KPhipps3000. I'm a freelance writer, so I collect my clips at KeithPhipps.com. It needs to be updated, as always. Um, I write for places like Vulture, The Verge. Uh, I had a piece in The New, the New York Times recently. Mm. Um, about what was my, that about? What about should the, people look for? It's about My Little Pony. It's in the parenting <laughs> section. Um, so, yeah. And um, um, you can find me occasionally at Mel, occasionally at Polygon, occasionally in a bunch of other places. Uh, and uh, that's it. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net net via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show and if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcast already please consider it apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners and while you're there we appreciate every rating and review every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.